Travel back in time to the 80s, reliving the advice. Carpe diem. Seize the day. The comebacks. Why don't you take a picture? It'll last longer. <laughs> and the technology. Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? Because just like you, we're stuck in the 80s. Can you say stuck in the 80s? Hey, hey, welcome to Stuck in the 80s. It's your host, Steve Spears. And Brad in L.A. And today we talk to a photographer who knows a thing or two about one of the finest institutions of our decade, the mall. What's the matter? You look depressed. I hate working the theater. All the action's on the other side of the mall. Stuck in the 80s is a member of the CLNS Podcast Network. You can find our podcast on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and the CLNS Media mobile app. And don't forget to listen to our podcast at the CLNS Media website. You can find it at clnsmedia.com. And as always, if you love the show, share the links on social media. And don't forget to like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. So, Steve, I'm wandering around the internet last week looking for something shiny. And I came across this interesting Kickstarter. Do you know what a Kickstarter is, Steve? Uh, Kickstarter is one of those projects you do online where you you raise funds for your project and in return you get like a special gift or a bonus edition of something yeah it's a crowdfunding site it allows you to promote a business idea or a creative project directly to the public right so this guy michael galinsky it's his second book of photos that he took in malls the summer of 1989 and i remember the first kickstarter very well because the book was here and then gone it never showed up in stores or anywhere and i was kind of disappointed so when i saw this kickstarter i'm like oh my gosh take my money cool i mean i love uh, i'm fascinated by mall culture i mean obviously you and i you know spent our formative years at malls both in oklahoma and in california <laughs> i'm sure this weekend i sat down with michael and we talked for about 30 minutes we chatted about the book we chatted about how he got into photography we talked a little bit about the process of actually taking these pictures without getting beaten up or thrown out of malls it was good he goes really deep on some stuff he talks a lot about the kind of the process and the inspiration that he had for doing this photography and it's this is a little more culture than maybe we get on a, your usual episode of Stuck in the 80s. But but stick around. We'll talk a little bit about The Clash. You'll like that. And uh, when we wrap up the interview, we'll talk a little bit about some of our favorite fictional malls from the 80s. And then we will have Seggies and some other things to discuss. Sounds great. Okay. Well, sit back, Steve. Relax and enjoy my interview with Michael Glinsky, the photographer behind the decline of mall civilization. Hey, Michael, it's Brad from Stuck in the 80s Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. I'm glad to join you back in the 80s. Ah, it's a good place to be. So, Michael, your current Kickstarter campaign is for your second book of photography of 80s malls. Yeah. The first one just disappeared off the shelves before I could get my hands on it, much to my chagrin. It didn't even reach the shelves, actually. Uh, that was the problem. Okay. It didn't print nearly enough of them, and so when it went viral pre-release it sold out on amazon like because of a couple of articles so i mean actually i met a, a person recently here in north carolina who worked at a bookstore and um he got uh, an advanced copy and he gave it to his friend he figured he would just pick one up when it came to the store and then it never did 
Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> so the follow-up is is new pictures. It's entirely a hundred and probably 110 new images. So there's no repeats in either book. The thing is, what happened was, you know, I did a Kickstarter for the first book uh, and it, it too went kind of viral and really got out there. And that led to um, this really amazing designer reaching out to me and saying that he wanted to help me publish a book. Yeah. I mean, he's a brilliant guy and he, he designed a, a, just a fantastic book, but it only had about 60 or 70 images in it because the book was sold out. I was, I was kind of like, all right, I'm just going to reprint this book myself or I'm going to make a new book that has some of the same images because it had so many strong images in it. And as I started to put it together, it turned into a very different book. The first book is like every photo goes over two pages. So you open the book and it's just a a full photo. And this one, I decided it was going to all be images playing off each other. So everyone is almost like a diptych, like a double page spread where each, the two images are, are kind of intimately connected, either just by the shape of them or the people that are in it or the colors, something about it really joins these two together. And that wasn't actually the intent. It was just I started to lay it out, and that's what happened, and that's what it is. That's really cool. I myself am a backer of the campaign. That's how this kind of started. Awesome. <laughs> so I, I saw a link to it. I'm like, oh my gosh, she's doing another one. I have to get in on the ground floor on this one because it might disappear again. Yeah, and it might because I was talking to several different distributors about getting into stores, and I just don't think that's going to happen. So I think what's going to happen is I will print probably double the number that we make via the Kickstarter. And by the mm-hmm. time it gets here, it will probably be sold out because I'll continue to pre-sell it on our website. Sure. So it'll it'll probably be gone because I, I don't have the wherewithal to put it into stores. And even if you do, you don't ever, no one ever pays you. So it's, it's almost uh, not worth it. Except the problem is actually I really do want it in stores because bookstores, photo bookstores especially, just were deeply important to me as becoming a photographer. I, there was a store in New York called uh, A Photographer's Place. And this is the late 80s. I would go to that store literally every day and just browse through the books. And that was my photo education because books really speak to me about like how you organize photos and how, to me, that's why f- photography is much less about an individual image or this image being this fantastic, you know, uh, perfect moment. But instead, books are like mini, mini films without sound. And so that they each each photo builds on the other photo, builds on the next, and it's about a wholeness. And so for me, books are really important as our photo bookstore. So I would, I am making a big effort to try and get into some of the more important ones. Yeah, the publishing business is a is a challenging one to be in right now. I'm sure. Yeah. What led you to photography as a, I don't know, vocation, career? It's not a. I don't want to call it a hobby because it's clearly not just a hobby. It's somewhere in between because. Um, I was in high school when I took a photo class and it was, you know, love at first darkness. It was the first time, you, you know, I saw an image appear in the, in the developer tray. I just couldn't, it was, it was so magical. And so I became like the yearbook photographer and the newspaper photographer and everybody's photographer in high school. But I kind of knew that I wasn't, it wasn't right for me to go to art school or to journalism school. I wasn't either of those things. I just okay. like, I like making images a lot. And I thought they were important. And I was always really resistant to doing things um, the way I was told to do them, or I, I was always really resistant to any kind of system. And so I, it was hard for me to see myself where they're telling me, this is how you make art. And I was like, I, yeah, I don't know. I was more of like a punk rock kid. And so I was like, I wasn't going to do that. But what I did do was I took a photo uh, color printing class at NYU where I was going. And it wasn't in the art school. It was actually in the School of Education health nursing professions. I, I don't know how it was in there. Um, but I couldn't actually take a, a class in the art school. You couldn't unless you were in the art school. 
the teacher was fantastic. And the very first assignment was to watch River's Edge. Oh my gosh. Okay. You know, which was an amazing movie. And, Absolutely. and you know, what's interesting. I were, I'm going, going off the deep end here, but um, you know, one of the most important movies to me in high school was probably um, over the edge. I don't know if you ever saw that movie, but you ha- you have to see that movie. It's the most quintessential 80s movie ever. It's really like a post-70s movie. Wait, we just talked about this movie. We just had an episode where we did the, like, the showdown between summer movies of 79 and 89, and that was one of the 79. It things. might have been 79 movie, yeah. yeah. But it didn't really reach people to like 81. Yeah, because absolutely. It kind of went into theaters, and then there was this kind of like moral panic about it, so it got pulled. So we all saw it <laughs> in the most 80s way of all time, which was cable television. Right. It yeah. wasn't even on straight to video. It was straight to cable. <laughs> and, but it was so profound. It was like, you know, Matt Dillon's first movie. It was this kind of really intense, you know, a kid who tells on another kid's a dead kid. So it's kind of all about kid culture and mm-hmm. kids versus adults in this kind of late 70s, early 80s way. But the reason it comes up is because a guy named Tim Hunter wrote that, but then went on to write and direct text and... um River's Edge. So there's this kind of really intense connection between all those movies. That's funny. My co-host Steve loves that movie. Oh, it's so great. It was the cornerstone of his argument of why 1979 was a better summer for movies than 1989. Which is actually interesting because one of the the backers of this project is Alex Winter, who is, I can't remember which one, is he's either Bill or Ted. Okay, I, I saw his name on the Kickstarter. I'm like, is that the Alex Winter? It's Alex Winter. He's an amazing documentary filmmaker that um, I was connected to. So I reached out to him and he was like, oh, this is great. So he got me this incredible quote. But, you know, what's really amazing is a big part of that movie takes place in a mall in 1989. So while I was traveling around taking these photos, that movie about these historical figures in malls was in the movie theaters in malls. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) That's so funny. What do you think made malls such iconic places in in the 80s and the 90s? I think it was partly movies and media culture, which kind of glommed onto this idea that it was the place to be. You know, I grew up in a fairly small area, a a bunch of college towns pushed together. So we had really dinky malls, but they were still important and the the places you would go. I mean, I have a 13-year-old now, and um, she's either at the mall or walking uptown on Franklin Street because I moved back to the place I grew up. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I I get it. It's like you just want to be out and you want to be with your friends and be seen. At the same time, like, you know, my 80s existence was much more on the the downtown street, Franklin Street in Chapel Hill. Okay. There were two arcades there. There was the Barrel of Fun and the Pump House. And the Pump House was an old gas station turned into an arcade. You know, those were foundational. And sometimes we would go to the mall. So I wasn't really like a mall person. But when I was in that photo class, I was telling you about I was dating a girl who went to college on Long Island, and I went to see her, and she had to pick something up at the mall. It was the only place she could get it. We went in, and I had my camera because I had this photo class, and I was trying to figure out what my, my project was. Right. We walked in. I was like, oh, my God, I've got my project. She was so kind of annoyed, but we just <laughs> cruised that mall for a couple hours, and I shot probably two rolls on that first trip. Okay. And it, my teacher, the one who loved River's Edge, was like, this is incredible. You have to continue this project across the country this summer. And having just read On the Road, I was like, hell yeah. And so I did it. If it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have done the project. But also, if it wasn't for the fact that I was kind of mostly taking anthropology, sociology, and religious studies classes, I wouldn't have either. Because when I went to the mall, I was looking at it as the new downtown, the new public space. What does this mean culturally? What does this mean socially? What does it mean about how we interact? And I was also thinking about it 
from a point of view of photography. And there was a, a 70s photographer named Gary Winogrand who did a, this amazing street photography and another 70s photographer named William Eggleston who did this amazing color photography. And then there was Robert Franks on the road where he drove across America in the 50s and took pictures. And I kind of thought, okay, if Robert Frank was doing the Americans now, he wouldn't be in diners, you know, in roadhouses. He would be in the mall because that's where America is. And he would be doing it in color like William Eggleston, where he's capturing this kind of absolute essence of what the time period is through uh, the Panatone colors that represent the time period. And he would probably be even a little bit more like a street photographer like Gary Winogrand, who I loved at the moment. So I kind of combined all those different elements. And those are all, you know, from that photo bookstore background as well. Like I was devouring all of their books. And so it was that stew that created this little moment where it's like, I'm going to take pictures in malls. Even though it was a place that most artists wouldn't really want to be because, you know, there was this kind of, it, it wasn't like you would embrace com- consumer culture. Right. But for me, it was like, oh, this is just a really interesting, colorful place that needs to be documented. And then it turns out I am literally the only person who did that. There are no <laughs> naturalistic photos of groups of people, street photography and malls. It didn't happen, which is absurd if you think about it. But that's why I think the photos really do have such staying power. Like if you Google malls 1989 or malls 1980, the only images that come up are mine. I remember when you published that first series of pictures on, I think it was Retronaut, which I'm not sure if Retronaut is even still around exactly. anymore. What was that like? What, what was that response like? Because it was bananas. It was bananas for me. because I, So you have to remember, I took these pictures and I thought, hey, these are pretty good. I was, I was really happy with what I got. And, and they were a little punk rock. They weren't like your decisive moment pictures where everything was perfectly framed. But to me, they had this energy that captured the moment. And I, I took them to a gallery and they literally laughed at me. Because at the moment, it was all pictures generation, which was these kind of like uh, this was 80s photography, which was kind of all conceptual. Okay. Like you'd have large format cameras and you'd stage the whole scene and you'd light it like it was a movie. And, you know, or you would be like Cindy Sherman and put yourself in yeah. it. Not not so much contrived as just really controlled. Controlled and, and somewhat and oftentimes kind of quite contrived. But it was about this idea of artifice and like the stamp of the artist had to be in it. And for me, it was more about disappearing into it. Like you know, that's that was part of the randomness aspect, the kind of the punk rock aspect. It's not about like um, having it be kind of an ego based thing. It was more of like, wow, this is just like just capture this thing and everybody can do it. And you know, it, give a a fat kid in Ohio a camera and they'll make a genius project. <laughs> that's a a quote, <laughs> by the way. Um, I, I'm, I just turned fifty, so my memory's not so good. But Francis Ford Coppola said okay. that. He said, like in the future, the you know Hollywood movies will be made, you know, by some fat kid in Ohio with a camera. And and that's kind of, you know that was almost like an Andy Warhol level awareness of where sure. we're at now you know in a way with Instagram and everything else. So what happened with Retronaut was a friend of my my, my brother in law actually posted a set of Bruce Davidson photos that Retronaut had posted, and this was before there was a whole kind of upsurge of all this amazing photography online. And I was like, oh my god, I bet that guy would dig these photos because I had just found them and scanned them, and I had actually made a, a music video for my band with them, but I hadn't really done anything with them. So I sent it to the guy from Retronaut and said, hey, I think you might like these. He didn't even write me back or anything. He just posted them. <laughs> and so next thing I know, they'd gone bananas. And it was both terrifying and gratifying at the same time. Like, I'd always known that they meant something. But because I had not gone through that systems route of art school or anything else, I had no connections. I had no way of getting that into that world. 
And then what happened was interesting. is I was like, oh, great. The guy who shared the Bruce Davidson photos is sharing these. But they didn't actually become a part of that world because that world was it's so closed. It didn't, it was, there was no awareness of them. After the Retronaut, what happened was, um, I think it was Refinery29 picked them up. And what was interesting is I, I went to NYU in 1987. And at the time, it was mostly a commuter school, kids from Long Island. Right, That's how it existed. And so they were really trying to attract people from out of state. And so that's how I ended up there. But so was FIT, the Fashion Institute of mm-hmm. Technology. It was right by um, Penn Station. And so all these kids were coming in from Long Island, Roslyn and Huntington, going to FIT and then going home at night. They are the people who were in the fashion industry. Okay. So when it hit Refinery29, they're like, yo, that's my brother-in-law. <laughs> you know, like everybody recognized. That's a world you had a connection to suddenly. Right, exactly. It made a connection there. And then that blew it up to all these other, I mean, it just went, it was way beyond my control. So it just, it just went out of control. And that's when I said, okay, I'm going to do a Kickstarter. Kickstarter was probably a year old then, and we'd already done one. And then that reignited it because I went back to all those websites and said, hey, can you reshare these? And say I'm doing this Kickstarter. And that's when it went viral again in an even bigger way. And I was able to do the Kickstarter. What was the process of taking the pictures like? Were you ever like, was security ever bugging you? Did anything like, were there any uh, like episodes where you were taking pictures of people in the mall and they're like, hey, what are you doing? Did you ever have any issues with people? No, I don't think I ever, but I was also kind of cognizant of that and didn't want, like, I knew that it was a quasi public space, but that it was private and that the mall cop could kick me out. Or that someone could complain and that would be it. So I really did it mostly from the hip. Oh, okay. Every now and then I would lift up the camera. But having done that, you know, I'd, I'd been doing a little street photography. I had a pretty decent sense of what I would get. The problem was I had a crappy camera with a very slow lens that wasn't very sharp. So, and I was shooting with, I think, 400 ectochrome slide film. And if you're shooting with slide film, you have very little room for error. Like you, you have one stop of error. Like if you're shooting on like negative film, you can either push the film in processing so you can get more out of it, or you can, um, you can work with it in the dark room with a slide. You, you basically, you get what you get and you don't get upset. <laughs> you know. So I got pretty lucky that I was able to get as many as images as I did. Cause I, you know, this is pre cell phone or pre digital camera. I probably shot, I, I don't have a good count, but probably 30 to 40 rolls of film total. Which is not a lot when you it think really about it. It really isn't. It really isn't. And that was the whole project. So what do you think the core ingredients are for a good mall or even a great mall? Like is an arcade needed? Do you need a do you need a movie theater? Like what is it that would make makes a, a mall a good one? I think a mall that's a good one needs people, space, and places. And so what what I mean by that is you have to have a critical mass of enough people to make it feel vibrant and alive, like there's an event going like it's an event to go to the mall. When you go to a mall and there's almost no one there, it's you just want to flee. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you feel really naked. And and but you, if there's enough flow that you can, you know, if you're a guy and you're 17 and you can spot a gaggle of cute girls walking one way, then you're like, okay, we gotta we gotta hit them on the way back. <laughs> you know, it's like you want to be aware, and it's not you're even gonna talk to them, but you just right. want to see them see and, and be seen and do that ritual to see and be seen. And, you know, I, the one thing that jumps out at me is there's, I often called the Woodfield Mall as being near Detroit, but it, it's because I was confused Detroit and Chicago I went to at the same time. It's actually in Schaumburg, Illinois, so it's outside Chicago. But that there's a bunch of pictures of that in the book, and it's just this incredible architectural space where there's several levels, and there's this atrium that's just humongous and architecturally designed that just, it looks like a spaceship. It looks like 
you are in Star Trek. And I just think that must have been really incredible. I, I remember being really overwhelmed by like how kind of cool that space was. And it really shows up in the picture. So I, there's a bunch of pictures in both books from that space because it just lends itself to, to being photographed. Um, but so, yeah, it's, it's a, the place and the space. And I think, you know, part of the thing that malls did was trying to z- design themselves as parks, as atriums, as places people would want to be just like they would go to a park, but they didn't have to sweat and they didn't get rained on. Yeah. Amen to that. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think is pushing this nostalgia for malls today? I mean, you talked a little bit ago, you talked about your, your 13 year old goes now. So it's not like they're not around and yet there's still yeah. this nostalgia for, it's interesting that there's a nostalgia for something that's really kind of still here. Right. Well, they, they've had to kind of grow, change and reshape themselves. And, and what they're reshaping themselves back into is kind of a combination of a downtown street and a behemoth place where you can go in and get cool when you get sick of being outside. So they're reshaping themselves back into themselves with new elements. People still, we're, we're very public social animals. And as much as we're online being social, we want to see and be seen and be a part of something. And so I think the kind of dropping the mall in the middle of a cornfield is probably not going to continue to be the space that it's in. But like there's a new mall here where I live and it's between Durham and Chapel Hill and Raleigh. It's, it's thriving. I mean, it's always packed. So it, those, these spaces can exist and they just have to reinvent themselves, I guess. But the nostalgia factor, this is actually something that struck me when I did the photos, which was that at about 20 to 25 years, our memory shifts to a, literally a different location in our brain. It's like a computer. We're going to move that memory to a different drive because we're not using it very much. And then it really sparks in a completely different way w- through rose-colored glasses. So we remember the things that we liked about it or the things that made us feel connected to the culture. You've just summed up our entire podcast, Michael. <laughs> that's the whole show yeah. right there. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> And so that, that's actually been something, like as an artist, I've always been aware of in a way that I couldn't really articulate until these photos happened. Because, you know, the work that we make doesn't generally find success in the moment that we make it, but it continues to kind of come back. And when, when it comes back, it's like, wow, this is really important that this happened. So after this project, I started a band and then I started documenting that world. And once again, I was kind of the only person who documented the segment of that world I was in. Because I had this kind of awareness of the import of that. And it's interesting because four of the people who gave me quotes for the book are, are a guy named David Godless, who was the guy who documented the whole CBGB scene. Chris Stein from Blondie, who documented, you know, Devo, Blondie, talking, you know, he was in that scene. So they, he and Godless were kind of around at the same time. Chris Stein had a little more direct access to the wider world of that. And he just took amazing photos. Teresa Kariakis took she was friends with all these kids in the punk rock world. So she's got like the first pictures of Billy Idol when he came. And then a woman um, named Julia Gordon who did like the no wave scene. And, you know, it's just, I reached out to all of them because they had not even while I was making it, but unconsciously affected what I was doing. Like I threw some of that work I'd seen and didn't know who they were or anything. I just understood the import of documenting things because they were going to be gone and no one else was doing it. So if I went to a show and three people were photographing, I wouldn't bother because it was like, I'm not needed. You know what I mean? Um, so, yeah. So, th- so th- that idea of documentation has always been really important to me. And I've always known that its real value comes 20 to 25 years later when those people are no longer with us, that scene is no longer with us. And if nobody had taken pictures, that scene didn't even exist. 
you need that time for the perspective. Exactly. And that rose-colored perspective, it helps because basically the things that made us angry, the things that we didn't like kind of tend to slip away. And those things that really stood out about that time, it's like, you know, it, it, being in a band at the time I was, it was like, I would say that my contemporaries, we all loved Nirvana and, and mm-hmm. kind of hated Pearl Jam. Because Pearl Jam felt like it was trying a little too hard, and it was more of like this. It was. It wasn't sure. Like, like how dare they? How dare they work so hard? Well, but trying too hard to do this thing when, and this is where it gets so gray. It's like it's. I listen to it now, and I'm like, I, what did I? What did I dislike about that so much? You, you, you know, the differences kind yeah. of fall there's, away. Yeah, there's things there to appreciate. Yeah, like yeah. someone who liked Cinderella, but uh, but didn't like uh, Striper. You know, it's like you know, or something like that. You know, what I mean, it's like you. It's hard yeah. for someone. No, who no, I get like, it so in the weeds of that stuff to see the difference but then later on you know it all it all becomes part of the same thing you talked a little bit about the atrium of that mall and it reminded me of i just started watching the new season of stranger Mm. things i'm one episode in so no spoilers spoilers. but the mall scene in that first episode is epic I, i don't have you seen it yeah i did it was you realize that we launched this kickstarter on july 1st and that show came out on July 4th. And it was like, what right. the hell? It was crazy because, all right, so I'm in Chapel Hill, like I said, right? Chapel Hill, North Carolina. The Duffer brothers grew up in Durham, which is um, 10 miles away. Oh, it's right there. Right. And, yeah. and their mall was South Square Mall. I mean, they went to this place called the Duke School, which is one mile from South Square Mall, which probably 20% of the pictures in the new book are from South Square Mall. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, because of what we said about that these are the only images that exist, there's there's no way. I mean, I haven't been able to be in touch with this guy, Chris Trujillo, who is the uh, production designer, but uh, mm-hmm. there's there's no way that the first book wasn't used for production design. Like the plants and the coloring and everything in that atrium there is straight <laughs> straight out of it. Well, so yeah. the yeah. big seating areas and the you know, the giant escalators into the atrium. Yeah. I mean, it's all just so, so much of a piece. And I saw it, I'm like, oh man, they just nailed it. That's actually in a mall that exists. They just recreated areas of it and set designed it. But that mall is still there and still operating. And in fact, people were going, they were, were, they were still shopping as they were shooting. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. That's funny. It's, they, like, wow. So it's, you know, you read they built the mall. What they did is they kind of recreated a huge section of the mall so that it would, have, it would be more period appropriate, which was really just more like, you know, recreating the fronts and stuff. I have to say I was impressed with the production budget if they built a mall for it. No. I, yeah. I, that's what I read. And it was like, no, they, they kind of re, redesigned the space to, to work. But yeah, it was pretty funny because it was like, wow, that was real. I mean, there's such this deep connection. And it's actually funny because yesterday I had a photo show opening and it's totally different stuff. But I, I took all these pictures in this pond in the meadow behind my house. And it was when all of the pollen happened. So what happened okay. was the pollen looks like Van Gogh's Starry Starry Night when you flip it upside down. So I had this show called The Upside Down. That opened yesterday. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah. And it's even weirder. I'm a filmmaker more than a photographer. Okay. And we made a movie called Who Took Johnny? And I don't know if you saw that, but it's about, it's an 80s movie, essentially. It's about the first kid on the milk carton, Johnny Gosh, who went missing in 1982. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. The mother, Noreen Gosh, it's really, it's, all, it's almost like an Errol Morris movie where we shot her looking directly into the lens, telling her story, and everyone else is looking left and right because they're supporting her story. So it's really her story about her 30-year search for her child, right? It's a pretty intense movie, but 
she and that story and the deeper kind of darker aspects are kind of the basis for Stranger Things. Because her story also interacts with this kind of whole MK Ultra story. And because there's there was discussion that he was brought into this kind of child sex mind control ring. Wow. So it's all these weird things. Like the Winona Ryder character is not exactly Noreen because Noreen was a rock. I mean, like she would go on the news and look in the lens, Johnny, if you're out there, we're here. We love you. And she, you know, she talks about she refused to break down and fall apart because she knew that her son needed a strong mother. So people thought, okay, this woman did it because she's not falling apart. But she was thinking, what does my son need? Not who am I and what do I, what, what, she just refused to fall apart. And so people thought she was the one who was responsible for his loss. It's, it's this kind of intense story, but all these weird connections to stranger things through our work. It's very strange. Oh, that's funny. Well, it's not funny about a kid on a milk carton, but. It's wow. surreal. We were not able to get festivals to show it. It took us a year and a half to get a review, which was this incredible review in Hollywood Reporter. And so finally, Netflix kind of said, yeah, we'll give you a few bucks for it. And then it just exploded. It was like on every top 10 list of crazy things. John Waters put it on his top 10 list of favorite films of the year. He's actually showing it in Thessaloniki this year at this festival. He's guest of honor. And they asked him to choose his 10 favorite movies. And he chose that. Oh, that's really cool. That's so great. It's just, yeah, it's totally great. Um, but it's it's that weird thing where it's like, if it doesn't fit what the system is looking for, the system doesn't let it in. It doesn't have a place for it. Right. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't have a place. So it doesn't know what to do with it. So no one in that system would watch it or even engage with it. And it's like the mall pictures. Like My mall pictures are not part of the photo world, but clearly they connect with people on this intense level. Yeah. But it doesn't do what the system expects it to do. So at some point, I think they'll be embraced. Yeah. But not yet. It's, it reminds me a little bit. I just listened to um, this podcast that the um, Spotify put out on the history of the Clash. I don't know if you've heard it. It's really good, but they talk a little bit about the Clash's second album and how CBS sent in a producer to basically make a record company record, and they just were like, "Nope, we don't want this." And they just, you know, they they did everything they could to sabotage the process because, you know, the, the the record label is like, "Well, look, this is." You know, we make records and this is how we do it and this is what we want you to do. And the clash is like, no, we're really not interested in participating in this. Because they just you know, there was so a disconnect great. between what they what they wanted and what the you you know the music world expected. Yeah. And because of that, they made one of the greatest albums of all time. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll just tell you this on Thursday, I, I'm helping a friend of mine make a film about the Jungle Brothers, who had a huge hit in nineteen eighty nine with Straight Out of the Jungle. And so we went to the 30th anniversary. It was like a 30th anniversary party for the whole native tongues movement, tribe mm-hmm. called quest for all those groups and money love. It was just so strange because it was like, it's 1989. It just keeps coming back. Like, and there was this huge amount of love for that movement at this concert. You know, if you can imagine, it was just like, it was really profound and, and kind of amazing. Yeah. I mean, those audiences are out there. They haven't gone away. They just are, they're just quiet right. doing their own thing. But it goes back to the idea of the kind of the malls coming back in a way. It's like what's what also happens is after 20, 30 years, people look back and see value in something. So you have Synthwave, for instance, like this kind of love of the mall. It's creating a whole new genre of music that's related to – all right. So this comes back to this other thing, which is I think is, is so profound and connected. But we started this band, and at near the end of my band, Sleepyhead, mm-hmm. we – did an album that was our greatest album that nobody ever heard. And one of the songs on it, but the first line is, nostalgia should become a criminal offense. We're all pining for a lost innocence, dreaming back a feeling that we never really had at all. 
which I just think is like, that's exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. It's, oh, yeah. It's so, it was so kind of prescient to think about it in that way. Like, nostalgia is not really dreaming. It's dreaming back a, a feeling that we never really had. You know, it's the feeling that we wanted to have. Right. Um, we wish we had. It's the feeling without the complications. I, I like you know? that. And, and that so, makes a lot of sense. Yes, I would agree with that. You stripped it down to just the one thing that you wanted out of it and not not allowing all the other kind of details. To, right. To and then Happy Days it. is kind of a good example of that. You know, 80s kids grew up in the 70s watching Happy Days, which was nostalgia for the 50s. So it's like these cycles always happen and they happen kind of in, you know, between 20 and 30 year cycles. And it, right. that's, I mean, that's what Stranger Things tapped into in a weird way. Yeah, I I mean, do you think that you know? do you think that the I mean, 80s nostalgia has been riding a wave now for a little bit and Stranger Things definitely gave it a boost. Do you think that just the the internet or modern society or or something is going to stretch those cycles or are we still going to see that same kind of pattern where the 80s are going to fade and then god forbid, I mean, let's hope that doesn't happen. And then and then the <laughs> 90s will start to rise up, we'll start to see nostalgia for Well, I think we're already seeing that the early issues of that are like, you know, I'll see a friend of mine post a picture of himself with his kid and his kid's wearing a Nirvana t-shirt, you know, and it's, and it's not like the kid is deep in music. It's just that these things rise back up again. That's the iconography that's coming yeah. back. Right. Yeah, exactly. And the, and, and what that represents for that time, these images have an impact and these things that kind of create a cultural moment almost enter our DNA and the DNA comes out through our children who have this kind of fascination with this thing that was really powerful when we were children. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I've I've infected at least one of my kids with the love of 80s music. <laughs> yeah, I mean it also our 80s music experience kind of dovetailed with both uh, like a kind of the rise of both college radio and MTV at the same yeah, time. Yeah, that's true. Like in college radio, you would hear, you know, bring the noise followed by London Calling. And there, there was no disconnect. Actually, I have a book of photographs of like my rock photography called Scraps. And the, on the cover, there's a guy wearing a disco letter punk rock hat, wearing a Def Jam t-shirt. <laughs> and it just encapsulates that exact thing. Like, you know, we appreciated the novelty or the innovation of all of those things. And then, you know, late 80s became kind of like a crushing of innovation. And then the 90s became a pushback on that. Like, there's a picture in the first book of this kind of Metal kids wearing grunge clothing, but this was the year of Guns N' Roses before Nirvana had broken. So it was kind of like you can see in the malls this weird moment where you're in between. Right. People are trying on you know? different looks and trying to figure out what. Yeah, and just going in different directions and, and like pushing it. Or you, like in this book, there's this incredible metal dude at a, um, at a guitar shop. It's just incredible like the hair and everything i can guarantee you a year later the hair was gone it just was over you know some people would hang on to it maybe for a little bit the metal thing but then you they, that becomes an even more outsider right. thing I, mean, I think this is also probably the same year of heavy metal parking lot so you, you know it's just total mashup oh which is fantastic yeah. yes and and also it's kind of it was viral before the internet via vhs so Jeff Krulik, who made it, it's a friend of mine, and he basically gave a VHS to somebody. It might have even been like somebody who was um, kind of like a roadie for Sonic Youth. And then that person gave it to somebody else, and they just started dubbing it. And it just went – dubbing VHSs is how it went viral. It took a little bit longer than my photos, but it was the same process. It takes a little longer than YouTube. That's true. <laughs> That's funny. 
I got one last question for you. This is one that we ask a lot of our a lot of guests on the podcast. So we have this this concept that we call the podcast time machine. If I could give you a seat on the podcast time machine to go back to the eighties to you know to see something or do something or you know tell somebody something, what would you use that seat on the podcast time machine for, Michael? You know, and the first thing that pops to my mind is I would take it to go back to the Palladium and see the five-night run of The Clash in New York City. That is a fantastic answer. I really like that answer. That is a worthy use of the podcast time machine. As soon as we get it built, I'll get you a seat. (laughs) I actually saw The Clash when I was in eighth grade, and it was on, I don't know, Cut the Crap or something. It 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 sucked. It was a real disappointment. It was in a basketball arena. It sounded like crap. They came out like an hour and a half late. And uh, and I probably had to leave two-thirds of the way through because I knew I was going to get my ass kicked because I was so late. Um, <laughs> and it yeah, it was, it was super disappointing. Oh, my gosh. See, there's, there's a good example of those stories that you tell. If, if you start with, I saw the clash when I was in eighth grade, people are like, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. And then the follow-up, and it sucked. Like, oh, you mean everything wasn't amazing in the 80s? It, it was kind of disappointing. I mean, the sound in, in those places was terrible. The year before, I saw in the same place, the Talking Heads, and that was actually pretty great. I think they, they cared more about sound. They were obsessive. Yeah. Um, I could see how seeing the clash in a big arena would have been kind of a non-starter. It was just a mush. Yeah, exactly. Just That's why I said the profile. Palladium, where it was just this thing. And it wasn't even it wasn't a state. It was like a 12,000-seat basketball arena. I think the next day I saw Michael Jordan playing there. <laughs> I mean, like literally, that's when he was uh, he was at playing for UNC. So, Steve, that's my interview with Michael Galinsky. The Kickstarter campaign is called "The Decline of Mall Civilization," and it runs through August fifth. So, if you want to get your hands on a copy of this, I would suggest that you get over there and. Get in the backer list post haste. And how do we find his Kickstarter campaign? Kickstarter.com and search for The Decline of Mall Civilization. Excellent. Count me in. I'm in on it. And by the way, may I compliment you on your podcast time machine question? I think that's going to have to become a staple of all future interviews. We've gotten some good responses to that one lately. I feel like we get, you know, we get a little view into people's psyche, what they would change or say or do. <laughs> The Clash, man, I love The Clash. I, I, I mean, come to think of it, I would love to go back and see his show too. But I can understand how he sort of had, you know, not the best experience. Yeah, that was funny because I really didn't see that story going that way. When he started with, I saw The Clash, and you know, when I was thirteen, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's fantastic. And then he kind of lowered the boom on the story. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know, I was thinking about that as I was listening to your interview. I keep thinking of. Yeah, the the role that malls played in the eighties. I mean, and obviously, so much of our social life depended on the malls. I mean, like I, I had dates that was just that were just, hey, I'm going to meet you at the mall on Saturday, right? And right, and you'd have enough money to buy two slices of pizza, and maybe like four dollars to get you know quarters for, at the arcade, Aladdin's Castle, in my case, and that nice. that was your date, and you would go and. If you were lucky, maybe you found some like dark corner in Sears where you could, you know, make out. <laughs> Try with on some gabardine slacks, <laughs> something like that. But I mean, that was it. And the mall that I went to as a kid is still around. It's Countryside Mall. It's over in Clearwater, Florida. It's oh yeah. It's still, 
still the same structure. Nothing's really changed. The I think some of the vendors. I mean, there's obviously no arcade. And there's a food court yeah. instead of a pizza place. But you know, I, I mean, kids just you know what are they? I mean, I guess they have so many more options these days. But that was our only option. It was it was the mall or roller skating. That was one of the things that surprised me in the interview is when he said his 13 year old daughter spends all her time at the mall. I'm like, well, okay, well, so that hasn't changed that much. Maybe you know, it's maybe. still a, a semi-public place my kids never went to hang out at the mall but you know i don't know my kids are odd children let's face it (laughs) no they're not you have great kids you you sell oh they're amazing they're amazing but they're not typical yeah i'll I'll give you that so i was also thinking back and i'm thinking of all the movies where malls play such an important role like they're almost a character to themselves and i was kind of wondering do you brad williams have a list of your top five favorite fictional malls from uh, 80s movies? Steve, that's a really good question. I happen to have such a list right here. Would you like <laughs> me to share it with you? Yes, please. Okay, let's do a quick countdown. I promise we'll get through these quick. Number five. Number five is the mall from Night of the Comet. Do you have your MasterCard on you? No. Good, because you don't need it. The stars are up I know you love Night of the Comet, so am I pandering to you a little bit here? Maybe. No, no. Every every eighties fan loves Night of the Comet. If you, it's it's sort of like the uh, litmus test of uh, of an eighties fan. So Night of the Comet Mall. That was actually in real life was the Bullock's Wilshire in L.A. I don't believe that is. I think it's an office building now. It's not even a store oh. anymore. I know. Number four. Number four. We're gonna get it all back with number four though. The Mall in Weird Science. Susan, do you think you could wrap up a bottle of this scent for me? Because it's, I like this. Um, two. And two. why don't you set yourself up with one of them, too? Set yourself up. That's three cents, please. That was the Northbrook Court Mall in Northbrook, Illinois. I think that's the only mall scene in a John Hughes movie. I think. Wow. That that kind of be odd for someone who's like considered, you know, the auteur yeah. of the 80s to only have one mall scene. Gentle listeners, correct me if I'm wrong there, uh, but I'm pretty sure that's true. Okay, I'll take it. Number three. The San Dimas Mall from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. This is the San Dimas Mall, and this is where people of today's world hang out. All right, everybody, watch your step getting off. Beethoven, make sure you don't get sucked under. That's epic, and you know it. Yes. This movie is getting a, a lot of overdue love lately, and I'm, I'm really happy for it. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the new sequel comes out. They're going to have to hit just the right note. <laughs> they really are. So the San Dimas Mall scenes were shot at the Metro Center Mall in Phoenix, Arizona. Nice. Number two. This is for all our quirky, our quirky people out there, including myself. The Virgil Mall from True Stories. They're wise to advertise his claims. In a place like this... They can comparison shop. Everybody could hardly wait until the mall opened. Said Margie Ortiz. I go there just about every weekend. So the two of the other girls from work. See? I told you. I love these mall scenes where he's walking around with John Goodman. <laughs> oh, And the fashion show. Come on. Oh, so good. So well, it's got good. the best song in the movie for sure. Yeah. What mall did they use for that? that? The interiors were shot at the North Park Center in Dallas, Texas, which is still there. Wow, nice. Yeah. Number one. Number one couldn't be anything but Ridgemont Mall from Fast Times. 
What's the matter? You look depressed. I hate working the theater. All the action's on the other side of the mall. I think we already used the quote at the top of the show, but that's okay. Ridgemont Mall, this is, again, I think this is kind of a character in the movie. The interiors were shot at the Sherman Oaks Galleria in Sherman Oaks, California. Yes, that Galleria. Yes, in the valley. It is unfortunately no longer a mall. It is office buildings now. But the structure's still there? Structure's still there. Mm -hmm. And it's still called the Sherman Oaks Galleria. There's a movie theater there. There's some shopping, but it's mostly offices. Can I offer two bonus malls for you? Yes, Jen. One, I would say the Blues Brothers uh, Mall with the with the drive through scene. Oh, God, it's so good. It's pants and burgers. Yeah. Lots of space in this mall. Uh, Blues Brothers. We never, never name-checked that as an 80s movie, but it is, it is definitely one. And then the other one is, and I don't think, I guess they name it, uh, the one in uh, Valley Girl. Like I got this problem. And I don't know what to do about it. Yeah? That's easy. Take it back and get a more expensive one. You know, the expensive ones always fit better, honey. Dad. (laughs) So many of the most important scenes are shot. And I think that's the Sherman Oaks Galleria. So much of that movie happens at the mall. But but still, not as much as Richmond Mall. (laughs) May it live in peace. Great list, Brad. There's only one thing that can top it. The The Seggies. What's happening, hot stuff? Ah, by the sound of the gong, it must be time for a mystery movie moment. And speaking of mystery movies, can I just give like a a belated shout-out to Michael Galinsky for his love of one of my favorite movies, Over the Edge? Yes, yes, Steve, you may. Please do so. (laughs) We called that out in the Summer Movies of 1979 versus 89 podcast, which, by the way, is like the most downloaded podcast of of the year so far. Is it really? Wow. It's like number one or two. Our listeners are completely inscrutable. <laughs> yeah. I remember that the, the emails that came in after that were people either love Over the Edge or they'd never seen it before, watched it on my advice, and hated it. So you can go either way these these days. Anyway, you know the uh, theory behind this particular segment of the podcast episode. We will play a segment of a movie from the 80s if you can get it right. Fame, fortune, all of that will elude you. Instead, you might get a bottle opener. <laughs> if your name comes up on the wheel of spinning. Yes. Pay attention. Here was the clip the last time we had this glorious event. It takes so many things to make love last. Most of all, it takes respect. And I can't live with the man I don't respect. What a pisser. Yes, that's Airplane. Wow. Oh. It's on streaming, and so is Airplane 2, the sequel. And every night for the last two weeks, I've been like, I've had my my remote control poised on Airplane 2, the sequel, trying to decide whether or not to watch it or not. And I just I just remember it being so bad. So I, I haven't pulled the trigger yet. Let but, me tell uh, you something, Steve. Are you sitting down? Yes. I've never seen Airplane 2. You didn't miss a thing, my friend. I've kind of decided uh, that I'm going to deny that it exists, kind of like Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. That's fine. I fully salute you in your choice. Uh, why don't you read some of the winners? Winners this week include Mark Chapman, Alan Titus, Peter Ryan, Mark Ram, Michelle Willits, Chris B. Critter, Jared JFK Knott in Louisiana, Tom Corn in Austria, Senor David De La Dirt, Brock in North Dakota, Kevin Crescent Wench, Mr. Whiskey, Shan Nichols, and Terry in Oz, who writes... Oh my gosh, I've been listening for 10 years to you guys, and finally I know a movie moment. It's from what we in Australia know as Flying High, but I think elsewhere it was called Airplane. 
<laughs> That's interesting. Flying high. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Uh, the name itself was part of the whole satire of it, so changing the name, I'm not sure how, sure how well that works, but whatever. Sometimes comedy doesn't translate. Sometimes. Like, people listen to our show sometimes like and think most of the drama. stuff I say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, pay attention. Here's this week's mystery clip. The only thing better than a glass of beer is tea with Miss McGill. <laughs> if you know it, email us at podcast. I don't know why I'm emphasizing that. There's really no reason to. At sit80s.com. And tune in, I'm going to say, two weeks. And find out if you're a winner. Yeah, that checks out. Ah, uh, the mystical refrain that is, name that 80s tune. I swear I say that in my sleep, in that exact order. Anyway, speaking of which, I recognize this song. You know the deal here. Again, mysterious clip. You listen to it. You Wait, let me guess. If you get it right, your name is in the drawing for a bottle opener? For a bottle opener. Or, or it turns out that the Hall & Oates H2O t-shirt has not been claimed yet. It's still up for grabs. The prize has rolled so, over, just like a good lottery jackpot. Yeah. If you want it, if you're the one who wins this week, it's your choice. It's getting loose now. I feel like I'm getting loose, like too loose, and I'm not keeping the show together. Are we going to be okay yeah. with that? We're going to make it. We're <laughs> going to make it We're going to make it fit, just like that t-shirt. Yeah. That shirt wouldn't fit me, my friend. Very snug. Anyway, pay attention. Here was the clip from uh, probably two shows ago. That's You Got It All by the Jets. Jets, by the way, will be performing on Get Ready to Drink, the 2020 version of the 80s cruise. Yeah, I think this is probably next year's. I had zero expectations for this band, and they were a lot of fun. Yes. I think, I I think kinda, this, they, they are a contender for that award. Yeah. I just so, I'm like, uh, oh, the Jets. Okay, I know how to spell that. Yep. Uh, no real memory of their stuff, but I bet they're pretty good. Brad, read some of the winners. Winners this week include Joseph Perdue, Michael Mockrock Hayes, Alan Titus, Mark Ram, Dave in Oxford, Jeff in Richlands, Virginia, Jeannie from Egan, Senor David de la Thirt, Brock in North Dakota, Rock the Good Ag, Kevin Serving Wench, Chris the 80s Queen in Massachusetts, Irwin with an E, Chris living on the air in Cincinnati Adams, Dean, I knew Brad when he was just the assistant drum major in Texas, Jamie Cruz the Rhodes. <laughs> Tim from Asheville, North Carolina, a.k.a. The Town So Wonderful, Steve Martin and Edie Brickell recorded a song about it, and Chris in Overland Park, Kansas. Sorry, Dean do you have a question about that? No, I just I just realized, as you were reading it, I just realized it's Dean. So That's my friend That's my Dean from Dean. high school, yeah, yeah. Yes, great guy. Can tell you all of the stories about what an idiot I was when I was younger. He knows where all the bones are buried. He helped. He uh, held the shovel most of the time. Yeah. Uh, spin the wheel. Let's find out who gets the choice between a bottle opener and a snugly fitting Hollow Notes concert tee. Uh, 
And looks like it's going to land on Jeannie from Egan. You were uh, this week's, uh, I was going to say magical winner, but is it really magic? Or is it just uh, luck? I think it's just uh, luck. Email us with your postal address. Tell us if you want the size large Colonos H2O Tour shirt or the bottle opener. In the meantime, pay attention. Here's this week's mystery clip. If you know it, email us at podcast, more levity there, at sit80s.com. We'll be right back after this commercial break. At Atari, our game cartridges undergo grueling tests. We put Kareem Abdul-Jabbar up against Atari basketball. Oh, man, what a move. We let Mario Andretti test drive Atari Night Driver. This game really cracks me up. And the great Pele himself tested Pele's championship soccer. What a gig, it beat me again. At Atari, we take our games seriously, so you have more fun. How'd you do, Kareem? I'm glad I won't face Atari in the playoffs. No other video game company stacks up to Atari. And we're back, and we have just a few minutes left in the show. And we just found out today, hours before we were going to record the show, that Rutger Hauer passed away. He, he died July 19th at his home in the Netherlands. He was just 75 years old. Mm. What's really bizarre is that the news comes out after, after he, he was already buried. He, yeah. he, his funeral was today. I think there's not an 80s fan out there who would say that Blade Runner is nothing short of a fantastic movie, largely thanks to Rutger Hauer playing the villainous Roy Batty. It it all hinges on him in a lot of ways. He reportedly ad-libbed most of his final soliloquy in the movie. That's amazing. Not scripted at all. If you want to share some of his other works, obviously, um, Lady Hawk. I love that movie. I really like that movie. I know the soundtrack is is garbage, but I yeah. just really like that movie. The story is great. The acting is great. He's fantastic. Yeah. Flesh and Blood is fantastic from 1985. The Hitcher in 1986. Yeah. Oh, he's so creepy. He worked pretty much constantly. He worked yes. so much. He did. I mean, God, he's the villain in Batman Begins. He's the yeah. He's in True Blood. He's in everything. He that was in you, Gallivant too. I mean, he had yeah. a lot of range. Yes, he did. I know there's been times where I just said, "God, I wish I was an opportunity for me to interview Rutger Hauer," because that would be a, he would have been a really great interview. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that makes that Roy Batty character really pop and the fact that he ad-libbed or wrote it himself or whatever, the soliloquy is just doubles the, the respect here. But that scene is a character that is talking about just soaking in his mortality, right? I mean, that's the whole thing that's driving him is we, have, you know, we only get to stick around for four years. And he is just – he's looking it in the eye and he's coming to terms with it. And that's not really something that we were probably ready to be facing when we were 16, 17 years old and we saw Blade Runner. We just thought it was this kind of cool flowery speech. But you listen to that now and you're like, here's a character. Here's a, a being that's kind of coming to grips with this – the end. Like here it comes and this is what's – this is what I've seen and this is what – this is where I'm going, and this is what happens afterwards. It's, it's, a, it's an impressive moment. Sometimes the characters who are not human 
are the ones that are most human of all. Rutger Hauer was one of a handful of actors who taught us that. And he'll be missed. We could think of no better way to end this podcast, but with that speech, Roy Batty, take it away. In the meantime, Brad and I will be here, hopelessly stuck in the 80s. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the ten houses gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears.